Hey, welcome back to the Ascent Church Podcast. We have a great episode for you. So let's get to it. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 4. And uh, actually when coronavirus started, I preached a sermon. Uh, it was the very first sermon on Facebook. Uh, at the time, I was hoping it'd only be a week, and then it turned out to be a whole year. Uh, it wasn't that fun. 2020, a great experiment for all of us. Uh, but I preached a message on Facebook. The very first one I preached was on 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11, and it was entitled, How to Live When the World Feels Like It's Ending. And uh, I, re- I really feel like that is a timely message still to this day. And so what I'm going to tell you to do is actually go back on our podcast and listen to that message uh, if you want to really get a, a clear exposition of verses 7 through 11, uh, because I think that's where I did the most of the work there. But for this sermon, what I want to do is actually just focus on one word in verses 7 through 11, and then we're going to see how that plays out in verses 12 through 19. And that word is therefore. I told you guys last week, anytime you're reading the Bible and you see the word therefore, you should always stop and ask, what is that therefore? Because it's always connected to something super huge and important in our faith. So I want to read... Uh, Chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump in. It says this. The end of all things is near. Now, I want to briefly stop there, because anytime you say the end of all things, people's minds start kind of freaking out and worrying a little bit. I just want to note to you that Peter says this 2,000 years ago. So is the end of the world near, Blake? Yes. But it was, and the batteries on my microphone just died, if you're wondering why my voice did that. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 4, 2,000 years ago. Uh, Peter says the end of all things is near. So if the end of all things was near then, and I say the end of things are near now, obviously God has a different way of viewing time than I have a different way of viewing time. So when I say the end of all things is near, it could be 2,000 years, it could be 20 minutes, it could be 2 million years. The point of what Peter is saying here is that we ought to live as if it could happen at any time. That as a Christian, the way we live is as if the end of all things is near. And by the way, friends, whether the end of the world is near the end for you is near. Do you realize that? Like even, even if you have 60 years left, they go by like that. And by the way, none of us know how long we have. We can get a diagnosis at the doctor tomorrow that changes everything. I could drive on the way home and get hit by another vehicle and my life be over. So I ought to always be living as if I could be seeing Jesus at any moment because I could be. The end of all things is constantly near. And then here's the big word we're focusing on today. Therefore, be alert and sober-minded for prayer. In other words, Peter connects, and all the New Testament uh, writers connect what they tell you to do, like the actual things you do with your hands, the, the moral imperatives. They're always connected with a therefore, that we never just say, do this because this is what Christians do. It's always do this because of something greater, something an ultimate reality going on, that there's something connected to our doing. That we don't just go to the hands, but it starts with the head knowledge of knowing what God has called us to do. It transforms our heart. And then out of a transformed heart, out of transformed desires, we then do some things. And here's what Peter says to do in the church. I'm just going to read it pretty quick, and I'll try to just talk about it really briefly. Verse 8, it says, Above all, maintain constant love for one another, since love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaining. That without complaining part's really important, right? (laughs) Like, it's easy to be hospitable to people, but without complaining, now that's where it gets a little bit difficult. And Peter says, no, 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 you got to remember, we're living as if the Lord could come at any time. And how has the Lord been hospitable to us? 
<laughs> he's opened up his home to sinners like Blake Farley. He's made a way for me to know the God of this universe, to be transformed in union with him without complaining. In fact, Hebrews says Jesus went to the cross with joy in his heart because of what was set before him. This is how we ought to be hospitable to others. Verse 10, it says, just as each one has received a gift, use it to serve others as good stewards of the varied grace of God. So friends, whether you're a Christian or not in this room, you've been given gifts by God. That if you can sing, whether you're singing Christian words or you're not singing Christian words, that gift is what we would call common grace, meaning God gave it to you. If you can write books, you have common grace from God, whether you're a Christian or not. And what Peter is saying is now that you're a Christian, now that you're in the covenant family of God, you use those gifts for the good of the body. So now if I can sing, I use my singing in such a way that it's going to build up others in the church. That's why I'm standing up here speaking using any kind of gift I have of public speaking to build up the body of Christ. You, you guys know that there's better ways to make money as a public speaker than what I'm doing right now. And, and yet I believe that this is what I am called to do. I believe God gave me this gift not so I can make money or maximize my life potential. He gave me this gift for your good and for the good of anybody else God would bring into my care as their pastor. And the same is true for you, whatever your gift is. And unfortunately, the church has gotten caught in a rut where we think gifts are only to be used on Sunday at a gathering, and that's just not true. Like some of you have a gift given by God to make awesome cookies. Like I believe that is a, a heavenly gift. There are some people who I can follow their exact recipe and it just doesn't taste as good. Like, I don't know what's going on because there's a gift there. And what Peter would say is you ought to make cookies to the glory of God for the good of the body. And that might be a completely different way of thinking about Christianity than you've ever seen in your life before. But that is what Peter is saying here. All of our gifts that we have from God, we're to use them to build up the body of Jesus Christ. Verse 11, it says, if anyone speaks, let it be as one who speaks God's words. Can you imagine how much more careful we'd be with our words if we believe that? If anyone speaks, let them speak as if it were God's words. You guys would never post on Facebook if you just followed that verse. <laughs> if anyone serves, let it be from the strength that God provides so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ and everything. And that word glorified is a big church word. We don't ever stop and explain, but it just, it means that, especially in this context, it means to reflect that in everything, people should be able to see Jesus in the way that I'm serving others, which is really powerful. And it says, to him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. And what I want to do with the rest of our time, I'm about to pray and we're going to jump in, is I want to talk about how the Holy Scriptures, the, the, the Word of God, I about lifted my notebook. I don't have my Bible here. I printed it out and put it in here. But if we're pretending this is a Bible, I say this is the Holy Word of God. And as Christians, we have to think about it rightly. We have to think about uh, how we logically come to the Word of God and what forms us when it comes to the Scriptures. And uh, really the reason I... I think I'm preaching on this this week is I've just had a lot of conversations uh, by God's providence, I think, with people who are struggling with the Bible, struggling with how the Bible works in their life, or, or they have different opinions about what the Bible does or how the Bible works. In fact, I've had conversations with some of you in this room this week, and you're one of many people. It just keeps coming up over and over and over again. And I think there's a lot of misconceptions about what the Bible is and how we handle the Bible and how we work with the Bible. And I think Peter has some, some great things for us here to look at as we think about what does it mean that the Bible is God's word? And how does that fundamentally actually change my life? Like, am I supposed to follow every rule in this book? Because have you seen some of the rules, Blake? Like, I'm going to have to give up bacon if I follow all the rules in the Bible. And then on the other side of that, you can look at the Bible and you can say, now, this church says they believe in the Bible, but like, I, I read the Bible and there's some things that they don't do in the Bible. Like, for instance, why does Paul in 1 Corinthians say all women should wear head coverings? How many of you are wearing a head covering today? None of you. And I'm not mad about it. 
And I'm going to try to explain to you why I'm not mad about it. Because using the scriptures as a, a rule book is really a bad way to use the scriptures. There's something more powerful and bigger going on than just looking at every line and saying, this is the rule for my life. So I want to talk about that. But on the other hand, we also can't look at the scriptures and say, well, if that's true, then I can do whatever I want. And I'll just make the scripture fit what I want. Because the scripture does have authority over us. So how do we, how do we deal with this authority over us, but not viewing it as a rule book? And I think Peter has some really good things for us as we jump in. So let me pray for us, and then we're going to talk about the therefore. Father, I thank you, God, for the gifts that you've given everybody in this room. Uh, Lord, I know some people might be sitting there thinking, I don't have any gifts. Uh, Yet, Lord, I know that if there's breath in their lungs, uh, it's for a purpose. That you have something that they are to do on this earth. Uh, Lord, you have something that you've given them uniquely that glorifies you that none of the rest of us can do. Uh, God, thank you uh, that you have used so many of us for your glory. Thank you, God, that I get to do this. Lord, and yet in my heart of hearts, I can easily turn the gift you've given me for your sake into something for my sake. I can use it to perform. I can use it to try to earn favor with people. And yet, Lord, as I stand up here on this stage, I pray more than anything else, God, I would use this gift to glorify your name. I pray that you would give me the words to say. Lord, I pray that anything I say that is not worthy would be blown away like the chaff in the wind. And I pray, God, that anything that you would want to be sealed into the hearts and the minds of the believers in the room today, Lord, I pray that you would just, you would highlight that truth in their hearts. And God, I pray for those who are just questioning the Christian faith and questioning the scriptures and questioning what all of this means for them. Lord, I pray that you would give them peace and answers through today's message. God, I love you and I praise you. Amen. I want to start by uh, giving four reasons why your faith should have a therefore that in other words when i say that you should be the type of christian who does things and you know why you do them that you should have beliefs that are very strong and solid in the lord and you should be able to give the therefore that i believe jesus did this so therefore this is how i handle my marriage i believe jesus did this so therefore this is how i handle my money I do not want us to be a church of people who just take my word for it as if I'm spoon feeding you Christianity and you say, well, I do this because Blake told me to do it. Or I do this because that's what my mom did. Or I do this because I thought that's what Christians do. I want you to know the therefore behind your faith. And that only comes through being deeply embedded in the scripture. And we are more illiterate in scripture than any other society before us since the printing press. I want that to sink in a little bit because there's no excuse for it. We have more internet connection to pastors, to Bible study tools than ever before. There's more self-help Christian books being published than ever before. And yet we are more biblically illiterate than any generation to come before us since the printing press itself. Why? Why is that? And I think it's because we have such a short attention span. And we take a book like the Bible, which is written thousands of years ago, and we have a really hard time studying with it. And if I can just be really honest, because I'm including myself in this, I can get intellectually lazy. Like I go to my Bible for a quick fix. How many of you guys have ever done the method where you just open the Bible? You're like, God, I need you to speak to me. And you just open the thing up and you put your finger down. And it's like, Judas hung himself. (laughs) Try it again. Jesus, give me a word. You know, like that's how a lot of us read the Bible. And it's, it's, (laughs) it's not the most effective. Amen. A much more effective yet hard way is to open the Bible and read through it and say, now what in the world is this saying? What is going into this context? What did Paul mean when he said this? And what does it mean for my life? How does it speak into the gospel? And friends, that doesn't happen quickly. And yet what I'm trying to get you to do is to say, Blake, I'm I'm going to pick up my Bible. I'm going to study for myself. I'm going to look at different points of views and I'm going to know why I believe. I'm going to have a therefore attached to my beliefs. 
And here's just four things to know about the Holy Scriptures. Number one, the Bible was written by humans and God, making it unlike any other book. So we can go two ways. Both ways are wrong. We can say the Bible was written totally by humans. And in a sense, that might be true because it was humans who actually penned the paper. But if you go down that route, then what you can begin to say is that this is just like any other book. Like what's the difference in the book Blake Farley writes and the book that a guy named Paul wrote thousands of years ago? And so we could say it's just humans and we get into this idea where it's not really a special book at all and it's very fallible. In other words, it doesn't really have authority over my life. It's just one opinion amongst other opinions. And that's not what the Bible would say. In fact, if we look at 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, Peter says this. He says, above all, you know this. No prophecy of scripture comes from the prophet's own interpretation because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And then in 1 Thessalonians 4.2, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament says this about his own writings. He says, For you know what commands we gave you through the Lord Jesus. In other words, Paul is saying there's something supernatural going on here. I'm not just preaching a sermon and writing it down to you, but Jesus is actually giving me these commands from the Lord himself. And you might not know how our Bible got put together. It's uh, 66 different books. It has Hebrew Old Testament, and then it has New Testament. And the Old Testament is actually made up of Jewish writings that Jesus would have read as a kid. It is the Jewish faith that we came from. And the way we chose the, the canon or the things that go in the Old Testament are they are all books in which are very important to the Jewish faith and or Jesus himself quoted So a lot of the Old Testament, Jesus quoted. In fact, the reason why we see Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, a.k.a. the boring books of the Bible, as books of the Bible, and you might think, why are these even in here, is because Jesus tells us, Jesus himself tells us, that those books point to him. And so as Christians, we read those books because those books tell us something, they inform something to us about who Jesus is, who is the foundation of our faith. So we can say that the books are just written by men and we get in trouble, but we can also say it's just written by God and we get in trouble. Like some people have this idea of the Bible as God literally took Peter's hand, put it on the paper and like wrote with it, which is just really a creepy image in my head. Uh, And what what we get into with that problem is we then kind of disconnect Peter from his own time or Paul from his own time. And that's why we got people who think women should wear head coverings in church. Because Peter and Paul were writing to real people, real churches that had real things going on. And so he actually was writing to a church in a context and telling them their women should wear head coverings. But the reason we don't wear head coverings is because we realize that Paul, in that scenario, was writing into a specific culture. And in that culture, one of the sexual organs of a woman was her hair. In that culture, they believed that the longer your hair was, the more fertile you were. And so what Paul is really telling them is we ought to be modest in God's gathering. I know, it's funny. It's weird, right? We do some weird things too. Like a thousand years from now, they're going to say some things about our culture, and they're going to be like, those people are weird. Um, And we are. We're weird, right? So in our culture, I give you different commands. Like my my commands to you, the things I say to you about how the gospel applies to Facebook are going to be irrelevant in a hundred years. You realize that, right? Like there's going to be a whole other company, a whole other thing going on. All of my sermons that mention social media are probably just going to be like, people are going to look at them and go, what is he talking about? Somebody's going to have to explain what's going on. Well, in the same thing, in Paul's culture, thousands of years ago, there's some explaining we have to do. So we have to realize it's both God's book and it's written through humans. See, it's holding this tension. And it is a tension, friends. And it's not something that we can do alone. This is why the Bible has to be read in community, because we need people who can help us understand this. This is why you guys pay me money to study random Jewish stuff throughout the entire week, 
Because you got your jobs, you got things you're working on. Part of my job is to spend 15 to 20 hours going back and saying, now what in the world was Paul talking about? And to understand things about the culture so that we can learn together. Okay, number two is uh, that there is that our trust is based on Jesus. Number one was the Bible is written by humans and God. Number two is our trust in scripture is based on Jesus. So your faith ought not be because the Bible says it is the Bible, right? That's circular reasoning. I believe the Bible is the Bible because the Bible says it's the Bible. That's not really much logic there. So why does Blake Farley believe the Bible is the Bible? It's because I really believe, and there's real historical evidence that there was a guy named Jesus or Yeshua, it was his real name. We, we, we Americanized it and called him Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth who lived 2,000 years ago. And he was a rabbi. He taught things. And people followed him. And then guess what happened? He died on a cross. Okay, that's fine. But what really happened and what's amazing is three days later, he rose from the dead. And I have a general rule in life. This is just my rule. It doesn't have to be your rule. My rule is if somebody dies and then rises from the dead, I listen to what they say. And I just think that's a pretty good rule. Right? Like, if you want me to believe your thing, just die, spend three days in the grave, and then rise again. And I'm probably going to believe what you have to say. And this Jesus guy did this. And he did it to 500 eyewitnesses who would say, we believe Jesus really did what he said he did because we saw it. And they were so in on it that they literally died for what they saw. And because I believe that this is who Jesus is, that that actually happened, I believe what he said. And what Jesus said was that the Old Testament was the word of God. And what Jesus said was that the New Testament writers, those who spent time with Jesus, his disciples, or those who were led directly by his disciples, those people had authoritative words for the church, not in their culture, not just in their culture, but in the culture of Christianity for all time to come. Because Jesus believes that, I believe it to be true about Scripture. And so whenever you're coming to the Bible and you're struggling or you're doubting or you're unsure on things, what I always like to do, and I've been there, Oftentimes, I have doubts in my faith. And what I do is I go back to Jesus, right? You're arguing with your friend about Genesis, and they're saying some things that are kind of confusing you about what this means or what that means. All you have to do is go back to Jesus and say, okay, the basis of my faith and the basis of Scripture is that there really was a guy who lived and rose from the dead. And if we start there, then our whole faith is built not based upon a book, but it's built upon what? It's built upon Jesus and what he did. Number three is Scripture is not our God, but it points to God. So a big mistake we can make is by, I grew up as a Baptist kid. And so that means that we, the Trinity was the Holy Father and the, or, yeah, sorry, God, the Father, Jesus Christ, and then the Holy Bible, right? Like we didn't know what to do with the Holy Spirit. Those people were weird. So we just made the Bible the third member of the Trinity. And we just got to talk about what the word has to say. And there's a lot of things I really enjoy about that tradition. And I love that tradition. And I'm so glad I was raised up in that tradition, right? But at the end of the day, I have to remember that the book is not actually God. It points to God. Like, we're not going to have Bible study when Jesus comes back. Do you guys realize that? Because the Bible points to him. It's not like we're going to be sitting around reading the book of Romans with Jesus. Well, I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of a nerd, and I might enjoy doing that with Jesus. Like, Jesus, can you please explain this to me? And, and he'll explain it to me. But we won't actually need to come. And in fact, I'm going to be out of a job in heaven. Like, I'm trying to think about what I'm going to do when I get up there, because none of you guys are going to want to listen to me talk about the Bible. I'm like, we're just going to go look at Jesus. He's like right there, Blake. We're not going to look at you talk about it. So... <laughs> I personally believe I'll be a NASCAR driver in heaven. Uh, that's just where I'm going with it. Like, I don't care. Don't, don't try to run my dream. It didn't, probably doesn't make logical sense, but that's okay. All right, number four. Here's the final one. Scripture is primarily a story. It's primarily a story. So if I read the Bible as a bunch of rules, it won't make sense because it contradicts itself. 
There are times where the Bible says this is a rule, and then later on in the Bible it says to do this thing that used to be a thing you weren't supposed to do. So what in the world's going on here? We have to remember that the Bible is primarily a narrative, that it starts with the man and the woman in the garden, and it's perfect. And then sin enters the world, rebellion enters the world, and there is a distance between God and his people. And the rest of the scripture is about how God is bringing his people back into relationship with him. And it culminates in a guy named Jesus, who is the savior that the Old Testament didn't have. If you read the Old Testament, you're going to find out something really quick. Every single guy in the Old Testament was super messed up. <laughs> like, you don't get told a lot of the Sunday school, a lot of the stories of the, the men in the Bible in Sunday school, because it would terrify your children. <laughs> like, we're not telling them what happened to Noah in the tent after the flood. Like, I, I just promise you, Miss Danny's going to teach them all the beautiful things. She's not going to talk about what happened to Noah in the tent. I'm not even going to talk about it. You ought to go read your Bible this week, because it's not Sunday school approved. What happens in the tent after the flood? And here's the point of the Old Testament. At the very beginning, when the rebellion first happened, God says this to the woman. He says, one day there will be a a savior who comes and that savior will crush the head of the snake. The snake will bite his heel, but he'll crush the head of the snake. And the rest of the Old Testament is about who is the snake crusher? Who is the one who's going to come and crush evil and restore everything? And over and over and over and over and over again, it looks like we found the savior. It's Moses. It's Aaron, it's, it's Noah, it's David, it's Solomon, over and over. And yet, what happens to all of these guys? They mess up tragically. They fail and they die, and God's people are still waiting for the snake crusher. See, the Old Testament should leave you going, is this story ever going to end? Because when the New Testament comes in, we see Jesus as the one who is ultimately the one who would be bitten by the snake, right? He dies on the cross, but he rises again on the third day and he crushes the head of the snake, crushing evil. And he promises us that he's coming back for the church, for his people, to ultimately defeat death. See, that's the narrative of the Bible. We have to keep that in our mind as we're reading it. Okay, now, uh, as we uh, close out, I got about 10 minutes left. That was the introduction. You're welcome. (laughs) A dead microphone will not stop me from preaching. I want to talk about why this is important, and we're going to use 1 Peter 4, 12 through 19. So number one, the reason why it's important that you have a strong therefore, that you know your Bibles for yourself, is number one, your faith will be tested. Look at me. Your faith in Jesus will be tested. I hope you know that. It's not like the Bible says, hey, if suffering comes. No, it says when suffering comes. I I, I hope that you realize that. And here's what Peter says in verse 12. By the way, I love Peter. He's a preacher. Uh, So you'll notice at the end of verse 11, he says, amen, like he's finished. And then then he starts talking again. Uh, And I also love in chapter three, he says, finally. And it's like, Peter, what are you talking about? You got two chapters left of your book. And he says, finally, which I think is funny. You guys don't find it as funny. That's because you don't know how long the sermon is. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. It's got about an hour left. Uh, Verse 12, it says, dear friends, don't be surprised when the fiery, fiery ordeal comes among you to test you as if something unusual were happening to you. So he calls back to chapter one here where he says the proven character of our faith is like gold. And that when they they would find gold, they would find the rock that looked like gold, they'd put it in fire. Why? Well, you put it in the fire and you get to find out if it's really gold or not. It burns away all the dross. And so sometimes they'd get this massive chunk of what they thought was gold and they'd put it in the fire and like, this is going to be awesome. And it comes out, it's just like a little pebble. It's worth nothing. And other times they'd put a rock in and, and the drops would burn off and then there would be this huge chunk of gold. But anyways, they had to put it in the fire. Either way, they'd put it in the fire to know whether it was genuine or not genuine. 
And Peter says in the same way, we will have trials in our life that put us in the fire to see if we come out genuine or not genuine. So these trials that Peter is talking about is any time in your life, Christian, where you get to a fork in the road. You become a Christian, you follow Jesus, you make him the center of your life, you will have these times in your life where there's a fork in the road, and you get to decide, do I obey Jesus even though it costs me dearly, or do I not obey him? This is the fire. Do I come out genuine, or do I come out not genuine? And there are so many examples of this. Um, I can think of a couple that, that was living together before they were married, and they came to the conclusion that Jesus Christ had called them to have their marriage be a representation of the church and that they, were, they felt personally convicted that they weren't to be living together until they got married. And they did the unthinkable. They made the work, did the work to move out of each other's houses until they got married. That is a great example of a fiery trial. It's not easy, and yet they did it because they felt convicted that God, was gonna, that God called them to do that. There's, there's other examples of people who stand up for their faith. In our country, we don't get to see it uh, all that often, but in other countries, there's literal between dying and not dying. Uh, there's stories in the 15th century of the reformers who stood up to uh, the Catholic Church, which had really devolved into a, a very evil thing at the time. Catholics today are completely different from what they were in the 15th century. But in the 15th century, it was very evil, and they, they, they would stand up to them, and they would say these things like, hey, we believe Jesus is the center of our faith, not the Pope. And then what would literally happen is the Pope would have people killed. They would light them on fire, a literal fiery ordeal. And uh, there's this really powerful story of uh, a popular theologian of the time, a Christian reformer, who they, they lit him on fire and they tied him up to the pole. And before they lit him on fire, they had him tied up and they had his assistant tied up with him. Uh, and his assistant was shaking with fear as you all would be, right? Like, oh my gosh, this is actually about to happen. And, it, and the, the eyewitnesses tell us that this guy looked over at his assistant and he said, be of great cheer, for tonight we will be eating dinner with the master. And then it said that as they, the fire lit up and, and began to burn them, they raised their hands as high as they could and they started singing hymns to Jesus Christ. Whew. That's ultimate fork in the road, right? Do we come out genuine or do we come out counterfeit? They came out genuine. I wonder what, what, what would it be in your life that would do it? And for us, it can be, do I give to this cause? Like it, it could be a homeless person. It, it, here's the way you know you're at the fork of the road. You'll he'll hear that sm small, still voice in the back of your head, and you'll be like, dang it, I don't want to do that. That's how you know it's not your thought, right? <laughs> like I, I never think to myself, I should buy the meal for the person behind me. Like that just, that thought doesn't occur to me. So when I hear that thought, I'm like, dang it, can you leave me alone, please? Like I'm just going to try to ignore that thought. Right? And, and so you'll have moments like this in your life where it's like, do I give or not give? And, and you feel the Holy Spirit speaking to you in that moment. Uh, or it can be, do I take this job which will make me more money, but I'll have to neglect my family? Or do I take this job in which I'll have more time to pursue the Lord and love my family? And you have that fork in the road to decide, do I believe what Jesus says about ultimate reality or do I believe what I say about ultimate reality? So number one, the reason why the therefore is important is because you will be tested. Number two, uh, life is just flat out miserable without a therefore. Life is miserable if you don't have a reason for the way you believe about everything. Verse 13, it says, Instead, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may also rejoice with great joy when his glory is revealed. Now, you've got to be very careful because it doesn't say rejoice that you are suffering. Like, we're not Christians who are just weird, right? Like, woo, beat me with a whip. I love to be suffering. That's, no, that, that, person, that person's got it a little backwards, right? He's saying when you are suffering, you can rejoice, not because of the suffering itself, but because of what we know happens after the suffering, 
right? Because we know what happened to Jesus. He suffered more than anybody else has ever suffered in ways physically, emotionally, and spiritually, in ways we'll never even be able to understand. The God of this universe taking on flesh, which, by the way, makes our religion unique from every other religion. Like when you're suffering, you can look at our God, you can look at Yahweh, he's the only God, but you can look at Yahweh and you know that Yahweh can not only say, hey, I see you, but you can know that Yahweh says, I understand you. Because however you're suffering, he has suffered also. Jesus can look at the lady with stage four lung cancer and know what it's like to not be able to breathe because he remembers his lungs being filled up with blood on the cross. That is unique among all religions. And see, what gives that lady with stage four lung cancer hope in her suffering What makes her able to rejoice is that she knows what happened to Jesus after the blood filled up and he died. What happened, friends? He rose again. See, he told us that the same would be true for us. And so as a Christian, I have a hope that the world does not have. I have a hope of rejoicing in what is to come even in the midst of my suffering. And here's how I can tell when somebody has lost something very meaningful to them, something they were placing their trust in. They become totally nihilistic about the world. So, for instance, if they thought that that true love was their savior, they thought that their spouse was the one who was going to make them completely fulfilled and they get a divorce or their spouse dies, they will become completely nihilistic about the world. Why? Because their faith was in that thing. And when that thing died, and by the way, every other thing you trust in in this world will eventually die. Everything you love in this world will die and pass away, except for the hope you have in Jesus Christ. And that's the only way we can rejoice even through our sufferings. We can also rejoice in our sufferings because Jesus says those things actually make us more like him. Uh, I heard a story uh, that a pastor told that he got from a pastor who told a story from a pastor who told a story about a pastor who knew a blacksmith. So (laughs) we're playing a little telephone here. Uh, It might not be true, but that doesn't change the point of what I'm about to say, okay? Uh, So if you're a blacksmith, I apologize for butchering anything I'm about to say. I just want to give you that disclaimer. I don't think we have any blacksmith. Any blacksmith? Okay, cool. I can lie all I want. Great. Uh, Uh, so th- this guy was talking to his friend who was a blacksmith, and he asked him, how do you know when the, when the metal is ready? Like, how do you know when it's, when it's time it doesn't have to go in the fire again? Because, you know, they put it in the fire, and they beat it, and they put it in the fire, and they beat it, and they put it in the fire. He says, how do you know when it's actually ready? And the guy says, I know it's ready when I can see my reflection in it. And, and this pastor friend said, that's exactly what it's like with suffering with Jesus Christ. Right? He puts us in the fire, pounds us, puts us in the fire, suffering, fire, suffering, until when? Until he can see his reflection in us. That's the ultimate goal of Christianity, to look like Jesus. See, our our goal here at Ascent, our mission, is that you would live like Jesus would live if he were you in everyday life. That I would think as Jesus would think if he were me. I would love like Jesus would love if he were me. And how does that happen? It only happens through suffering, through getting it beat out of me. Because I hold on to things, friends, and I need to go through the fire so that the dross is burned off of me. All right, number three uh, is without a therefore, we are living based on feeling. And this is, this is why our world is absolutely insane right now, uh, because our world has lost a therefore. Our world has lost a grand narrative. I was listening to an atheist psychologist this past week, uh, and he was bemoaning that we lost Christian values. And uh, you'd say, well, why does he care about Christian values? Well, he doesn't actually care about Christianity, but he says, for a long time, uh, our culture in the West had a set of values that we all believed were true. Like, we all believe this is kind of how you live. Even if you didn't really follow Jesus, you kind of believe certain things about men and women. You believe certain things about money. And what it did is it created a society in which we all kind of work together. But he said, we've kind of lost our therefore. We've lost our grand narrative. So you have a person over here who's got this narrative about the way things should be. And you've got a person over here who thinks this is the way things should be. And then you've got Christians over here who still think that this is the way it should be. And what happens is we begin to clash against each other. Like, it's so hard to have even common ground with people. Like, I... 
for instance, we, we could talk about, you know, is it okay for somebody to commit suicide when they're older? That's a debate that's really going on in the world right now. Is it okay if a physician assists somebody in suicide? And in the past, we could have started the debate with the idea that every person was made in the image of God, that every person had value. But now we can't even start the debate there because some people will say, well, there is no God. That really there's nothing that separates a human from a rock or a human from a tree. And then you got people over here who say, no, humans are made in the image of God. So irregardless of what you believe about what should happen, since we have different therefores and some people have no therefore, it creates debates that are never ending, which you guys feel a little bit of that, don't you? It's like, I can't even argue with this person or debate this person because we're on different, we're speaking different languages. I'm speaking French and they're trying to speak Spanish and it just, it doesn't work in the way that we're working together. Now, look at what Peter says. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 14 through 16. This is really interesting. He says, If you are ridiculed for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a meddler. That's a fun word. I think we should bring that back. A meddler. All right, you guys don't agree. That's fine. Verse 16. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in having that name. Now, I want to tell you something that might surprise you. The word Christian is only used three times in the entire New Testament. Because the word Christian was not a good thing to be called. That's what the outside world called people who followed Jesus. And they called themselves followers of the way. That's what they called themselves as Christians. Where we got the name Christian was from Romans and from other Jewish people who made fun of us. They would say, that's a Christian. Uh, kind of like as, as a slur to, who's, to, who, to who we were. And yet Peter here, he, he reclaims the word. He pulls the word back in. And he says, actually, what you should do is rejoice in that name tag. Somebody says, oh, you're a Christian. Yeah, I am. Thanks for noticing. I am a Christian. That's the way the word was originally used. That they lived so differently that people literally slurred them for it. Uh, it's kind of like, I learned this actually, uh, in the African-American community, uh, th- there's the, the N-word, which is an awful word to ever use about somebody. And that word really was perpetuated by people who saw African-Americans as less than. And what happened in the African-American community is they actually said, we're going to reclaim that word for ourselves. Which is why if you've ever heard uh, African-Americans talking to themselves, they use that word. And you might have said, well, why, why do they use that word, but I'm not allowed to use that word for them. And really where that originated was they got inspiration. Some people who were slaves, they had no freedom. They got inspiration from the way Christianity acted with the word Christian. And they said, you know what? We're going to wear that with pride. We're going to reclaim it just as the Christians reclaimed the Christian name. And so they were using that word in their community as a good thing to try to get some ownership, to say, you can call us slaves, you can chain us, but we're going to take your words and we're going to use it for our very own freedom. Isn't that a beautiful idea, friends? I had never even thought of that. And this is what Christians should do. Why? Because we live from a therefore of believing the world works in a certain way. And if we don't have that therefore and we live based upon feeling, then we're setting ourselves up for disaster. A pastor named Tim Keller shared a story from the iconic American TV show, The Simpsons. I think only at a cent you get an illustration from The Simpsons, but... Stick with me, uh, because it was actually a, a, a really the, the writer of this particular episode was a genius, uh, and it, it had like the, the the people going to this big uh, conference, and it was the conference of we do whatever we want, as opposed to the conference they had in past years, which is we don't do whatever we want, and uh, so it had these two conferences set up, and it's a we do whatever we want conference, and then we don't do whatever we want conference, and on the we don't do what we want, there's like very few people. And then you go over to the, we do whatever we want. It's this huge uh, coliseum, full, packed full of people. 
And uh, all of a sudden, the Coliseum begins to fall apart, right? Like the, the stadium's coming in on itself. And uh, so they go and they find the guy who, you know, he's like doing the bolts. He's screwing everything in and, and trying, to, trying to hold the thing together. And, and they're like, hey, well, you know, why didn't you put more bolts in? Like, why, why is this not finished? And he said, well, I, I didn't feel like doing it. And we're at the we don't feel like we don't do what we don't feel like we're doing conference. And, uh, and then the guy's like, well, you should have done that. And then the guy looked at him and he said, are you shooting me? Are you telling me I should have done something at the we do whatever we want conference? And then another guy comes up like out of the blue and he says, are you shooting that guy on not shooting at the sh- no, we do whatever we want conference? And, and before you know it, it just it ends up in a huge riot where everybody's fighting each other because they do what they want. And that's really a genius way of looking at the world. Like, we, we can't have a world without a therefore. We have to have a narrative. There has to be a truth. Otherwise, we all kill each other. And see, what Christianity says is we don't do whatever we want. We do what Jesus says for us to do. We live with a therefore. Otherwise, we're living based upon feeling. And that's a really, really bad way to live. It feels good for a little bit, but you end up self-destructing if you live that way for too long. All right. Number four, interpretation. I only got one more after this one, by the way. Interpretation really matters. The way we interpret the Bible really matters. 1 Peter 4, 17 and 18 says this. For the time has come for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who disobey the gospel of God? And if a righteous person is saved with difficulty, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Those words are really important words, are they not? Like even if you're not a Christian, you would probably think that Christians should look at those words and take them seriously. Because they are serious words. It says anyone who disobeys the gospel will not be saved from the righteous judgment of God. Now, if that is true, I want to know what it means to obey the gospel or to disobey the gospel. And uh, the only way to do that is to look at the scripture itself and to interpret it. And what we find in scripture interpretation that I've heard a lot from people that it really concerns me is people who will say, Blake, I just think everybody kind of interprets scripture the way they want to interpret it. And it's true that there are different interpretations. I'm preaching on 1 Peter 4, uh, 7 through 19. Probably in America, somewhere else, there's a pastor preaching on it. We will not say the exact same things. It just, it just won't happen. Uh, but that does not mean that my interpretation is less valid than his or that they're equal because they're not always equal interpretations. We must interpret the Bible as a serious document as it is. And for us to say that it doesn't matter how people interpret the Bible, that everybody does it differently and just kind of be nonchalant about it is ridiculous because we don't do that with anything else in life. I hope you guys realize everything is up for interpretation in life. If you go into a wormhole of words and the English language and how we communicate with one another, it will blow your mind because it's crazy that you guys even understand what I'm saying at all. Everything I say is being interpreted by you. Every single document we write down is being interpreted by somebody. And that doesn't mean we take it any less serious. So, for instance, if you have a contract with somebody, and in that contract, it says that if, uh, for instance, this would never happen to Taylor and I or anything, but if your apartment falls apart, they've got to give you money, uh, and then they don't give you money, uh, I have a problem with that. But the apartment complex, um, this is therapy, by the way, for me, uh, the apartment complex can have their interpretation, and I can have my interpretation, but they're not equally valid. And yet, what do we do? Do you guys just give up? Like, when you have a contract somebody violates, you just go, well, we all have our own interpretations, I guess. No, you say, no, this is why I believe it. This is it right here. And we argue about it. We debate about it. And if we need to, we go before a judge and a judge helps us decide which interpretation is valid and which one is not valid. Or, or, or think about uh, also in life, we think about the Constitution in our own country. Uh, it's up for interpretation. I'll, I'll give you a really hot topic one for uh, Northwest Oklahoma because I haven't said anything offensive yet and I just want to get you guys mad. Uh, <laughs> 
I'm just kidding. Uh, but the Second Amendment is something I hear people talking about all the time, especially around here. And irregardless of where you fall on the side of Second Amendment, I honestly, that's not my point with this. My point was to get you a little bit fired up in your soul so that you could see that interpretation matters. And I figured that'd be a hot topic issue for you. There are people in our country who are just as American as you and I. Like, legally, they stand and they are American, and they view the Second Amendment in one way. And you view the Second Amendment probably in another way from those people. And I don't know anybody who's on both sides. So you definitely determine it on a different side than the other person. And yet, do you just go, well, it is what it is. We all have our own interpretations. No, you fight for it. I see you fighting for it. I see you using logic to determine why your way is the right way and why the other side has no brain. <laughs> like I see, see, and you laugh because you know it. You're assured of your interpretation. When it's something serious, we take it serious. And then uh, one more thing that I, I thought of this week is, uh, you know, science. So in science, we tend to think of science as something that's proven and like it's, it is what it is. But that's not actually how science comes to be. How science comes to be is scientists present a theory and then they see if that theory plays out over time. So like you can't see an electron. You, you, can't, you can't see it with your physical eye. So they had to be a theory and then they had to see if a theory played out over time. And not all interpretations of the theory are equal, are they? So the theory of gravity. Can anybody see gravity? I don't see gravity, but I know it's there. Right? So you can easily say, well, I don't agree with that interpretation of gravity. And then you could jump off a building. And look, friends, I don't care how much you believe your interpretation, you're going to fall. <laughs> like, that's just the way that it works. You can drink Red Bull, it's not going to give you wings. <laughs> you are going to fall. And in the same way, it's not just like, hey, well, this person interprets the Bible this way, and then this person interprets it this way, so who cares? No, there's, there's like literal spiritual gravity. Like, if you go down that path, you're going to fall. And if you go down this path, I've got thousands of years of church history to tell me it is the pathway to life. Like, I've seen this interpretation play out over time, and I know this is the correct interpretation because it's been shown throughout the world. Your interpretation of Scripture matters. So I want to ask you a couple questions. And they're just questions. I'm not giving you the the right answer or the wrong answer, but what do you believe about women in ministry? What do you believe about infant baptism? What do you believe about money? Take those three questions, and you probably have an answer. What do I believe about women in ministry? Well, I believe this, this, and this, and this. And I would just say, okay, hold on. Do you believe that because that's how you feel about it? Do you believe that because you have a particular view of women? Or do you believe that because the therefore of the scripture has come to an interpretation that led you to believe something about it? And by the way, in scripture, there are people on both sides of the argument that are very smart, that have great arguments. But I have little respect for people who are so lazy logically that they cannot come up with their own conclusion. They just listen to whatever their pastor says. That's why I'm not giving you the answer on this one. Because in theology, we have open-handed and we have closed-handed concepts. The closed-handed ones are the ones that if you're going to call yourself a Christian, you're not allowed to disagree with me on because for all of church history, there's some things we've agreed on. There's very few things, uh, such as we believe that Jesus bodily rose from the dead. If you don't believe that, you're not in any kind of shape, way, or form what we would call an orthodox Christian. Uh, we, We also believe in the Trinity, that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are all equally God, and yet they're distinct beings. We believe in the atonement. We believe that Jesus came to die for the sins of the world. His death did a lot more than that, but it primarily accomplished the substitution for my sin so that I could live forever in the presence of God and he could begin to restore and redeem his creation. Those three things are close-handed concepts. Like we're not allowed, you're not allowed to be on the other side of me on those things and still call yourself a Christian. You can call yourself you know, whatever you want. You can call yourself a Christian scientist if you want, which is ironic because there's neither Christian or scientist with Christian scientists. It's like corn nuts. Um, <laughs> oh, there's the first offensive thing. Dang it. Uh, 
oh, I need my medicine. <clears throat> but then on this side, we have our, our open-handed concepts, right? Which are women in ministry, which are viewing how we view our money and infant baptism, that we're still brothers and sisters in Christ. We just disagree for different reasons. My thing would be, do you have a reason for why you believe what you believe? Do you have a therefore? Now, here's the last one, and it's the shortest one. Kelly, you can go ahead and come on up. Number five is without a gospel-centered therefore, your faith won't last. If you don't believe that Jesus Christ is who he says he is and did what he said he did, your faith will not last. You might be a Christian for a while, but eventually your suffering is going to come and you will choose the fork in the path to go the other way. And I don't blame you if it's not a gospel-centered faith. Look at verse 19. It says, So then, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust themselves to a faithful creator while doing what is good. We do what is good, and even when it looks like our world is falling apart for doing what is good, we continue to walk down the path of what God says. Why? Because we believe we have a faithful creator. And you say, Blake, how do we know we have a faithful creator? And this is where I say the gospel center thing has to come into play. See, we believe, and I believe I have a faithful creator, even when life falls apart. Because I believe my creator took on flesh, and he came down to this earth, and he walked amongst me. See, everybody wants to talk about why would God allow evil? I don't know, and I don't think we're going to have an answer on this side of eternity. But what I do know is God didn't just allow there to be evil. God came and he partook in the ill effects of evil. He didn't just see us suffering. He came and he suffered at the hands of evil people. He lived a life I could not live, and he died the death I deserved to die. Nine-inch nails through both of his wrists and his feet. He bled and he suffocated on the cross. Mocked and made fun of, spit in the face of, for me and for you. And three days later, he rose again, proving himself to be who he said he was. And and look, if I can believe that to be true, if I can believe God was faithful in this massive thing, then how will I not believe that he'd be faithful in the much smaller things? The much smaller things of of my cancer. The much smaller things of my losing someone I love as we come up on Memorial Day. The much smaller things of losing my job because I stood up for my faith. You say, those things aren't small, and I know they're not small. But much bigger than that is the God of this universe coming and dying for the sins of this world. And if God had me in that, then how would God not have me in everything else? See, it's remembering that therefore. Jesus died for me, therefore. My Savior is faithful, even when the world doesn't look faithful around me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these people. Uh, who come each and every week and hear your word. God, I pray that this 40 or so minutes they have with me isn't the only time they're in your word each and every week. I pray they don't just take me at my word, God, but that they would, they would look at what I'm saying and they would test it. They would see if it is true, God, and then they would have their own therefore. They would view the scriptures for what they are, a divine book, a, a book like none other, a book that can change their lives not because of the rules and commands, but because of the story of a Savior who came to redeem them. Jesus, I love you and I praise you. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Friends, let's stand and sing to this faithful creator. Thanks for tuning in to the Ascent Church podcast. You can check in with us on social media at My Ascent Church. New episodes each week. Thanks. Thanks.